Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as we continue to move through the book, we find ourselves at chapter 5 this morning. If you've picked up a Bible from either the back or a side table, you'll find Revelation 5 beginning on page 1030. And as you turn there, would you one more time uh, stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one, in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we want first just to thank you for your word. This is so good. You're so kind to reveal yourself to us. You're so kind to reveal to us the Lamb and His work. To reveal to us that all authority in heaven and on earth is His. To reveal to us that salvation is sure and certain. To reveal to us that if our hope is in You, we will not be disappointed. For You've already poured the Holy Spirit into our hearts. So, Lord, we just want to acknowledge Your Word is so glorious. This chapter is so glorious. 
Jesus Christ is so beautifully exalted. Lord, I just want to confess in my own weakness that it's one of those moments where I'm just desperate for this text to be preached more powerfully than I'm able to do. Lord, exalt your Son. There's no one, no one in this text that had to be instructed to worship the Lamb. And Lord, I pray that you would exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, in such a way that, Lord, we do not need to be instructed to live our lives as an offering of worship to Christ, for it will be so obvious that that is the appropriate response for this one who is worthy. So, Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, now, through the preaching of the Word, that we might behold Him in His glory, the Lion and the Lamb who was slain and who was risen and who was exalted at your right hand, who is the conqueror, who is the Lord mighty in battle, who is the Lord who ascended and the gates of heaven opened, that the Lord of glory might come in, that that one might be exalted, so that you, God our Father, might receive all glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan comes to David because he's going to rebuke David, call for repentance from David, for David's acts of adultery taking the wife of Uriah Bathsheba to himself, and an act of murder, actually having Uriah killed. Now you can imagine then the weight of that moment on the human plane as David is king. I mean, you just can't underestimate, humanly speaking, David's authority. He says, die, someone's killed, as evident with Uriah. He says, someone's blessed and they live. And Nathan then, the prophet, is about to come to David, this one who's reigning over all of the United Kingdom, is going to come to him and confront him and rebuke him. So you can imagine then the weight of this moment as Nathan comes. So how do you start that conversation? How do you start a conversation of rebuke with a king who's committed such atrocities and needs to be called to rebuke, who needs to be called upon to repent. How do you start that conversation? Well, obviously, Nathan starts by talking about a man and his little lamb. Now, it's not so obvious, isn't it? Probably none of us would have started this rebuke that way, but that's exactly how Nathan starts it. He he starts it by telling David a story about a man who had a little lamb. And he loved that little lamb. The little lamb was was, was all he had. And he fed that lamb with his hands. He, He let the lamb drink out of his own cup. He would hold the lamb in his arms as the lamb went to sleep. This was a precious lamb. And there was another man who had all kinds of flocks and herds. Everything you could want. 
And a man came through. And this man who had all the flocks and herds wanted to feed him, wanted to feed him lamb. And instead of taking one of his many, he took the man's one lamb who was cherished and took it from him. It was such a, a powerful story that, that David was pierced to the heart and, and exclaimed to Nathan, that man deserves to die. And Nathan declared to David, you are that man. Now, it's true, isn't it, that Nathan could have come in and he could have said to David, David, you have so much. You, you have... Uh, any, any woman of the kingdom could be yours. Or, 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 or you have all these riches. Or you're, you're in power. But David, what you've done is you've taken another man's wife. Uriah's wife whom, whom he loves. You've taken her from him. And then you took him from her by having him killed. He could have said that, couldn't he? But I think we all know that simply stating that truth alone is just not as powerful as combining that truth and really just enfolding that truth in this drama, in this story of a man with many flocks and herds taking the man's precious lamb. Nathan's approach reminds us how powerful it can be to take a truth and see it captured in a drama unfolding before you. I think that's what we have happening in Revelation 5. Now, if I were to sum up the message of Revelation 5, it would be something like this. The crucified and risen Lamb has done everything necessary by His life, by His death, by His resurrection to bring about the complete work of God's judgment and salvation and therefore is to be worshipped. If I were to summarize, it would be something like that. The crucified and risen lamb done everything necessary for God's work of salvation and judgment by His life, His death, His resurrection to be carried out in full. And He's therefore worthy of worship. And that would be true. And that's a, that's a theme that we should hear. It's a truth we should hear. And, and it should move us to worship Jesus Christ. But I think what Revelation 5 does is it gives us more than simply that truth in propositional form. It shows that truth to us in a drama. That when combined with that truth stated is much more powerful. And so this morning, I really know of no other way to preach this text than just to walk through the drama. To walk through the drama of what's happening here. A drama that, that really started in chapter 4. Now we've taken these in two sermons, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But it's one vision. You remember chapter 4 started uh, with John saying, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And now in the chapter 4 then he describes this heavenly scene. All the things going on, the, 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 the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the, the one seated on the throne, all of these things around him. That scene then continues into this second aspect of the vision. Really chapter 4 in many ways because it's the setting and then chapter 5 the drama itself. So this morning then, what I want us to do is just walk through the element of this drama. Just opening scene, second part, third part, the conclusion. Watch the drama, watch it unfold, and hopefully as it unfolds, be moved by it. And then see how it is that we need to live in light of this truth that's been dramatically portrayed. So with that said, that's what I want to do this morning. So I want to start first of all, obviously, with the opening scene. 
the scroll in God's right hand. The opening scene, the scroll in God's right hand. The opening scene is just captured in one verse. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, just as a reminder, what John is saying here, the one he saw seated on the throne was the one of chapter 4. Now, we remember him and his infinite glory, his fearful transcendence. Do you remember the one seated on the throne? John was seeing constant images that showed him that this God was other than him, that it was infinitely greater than him, was, was glorious, was transcendent, was awesome. Do you remember John saw him, but, but around the throne there were flashes of lightning and, and peals of thunder. There was fire around him. There was a vast sea. There were creatures and elders that were just awesome. All of these things telling John, keep your distance you better not think that this one can be approached. And in that scene in chapter 4, he starts chapter 5 saying, that majestic, awesome, glorious, fearfully transcendent God seated on the throne is holding something in his right hand. A scroll. A scroll sealed with seven seals written on front and on the back. Now, for the original hearers, this would have been a more common sight than, than perhaps for us. We don't work with scrolls anymore or, or put seals on scrolls. But this was, this was a common image in the ancient world. For example, someone's will might look like this. You might write your will on a scroll and then fold it up, roll, roll up the scroll, and then seal it with some kind of wax or something like that. Maybe press your ring as an insignia on it, and, and the scroll was sealed. And the idea was... Uh, it can only be opened uh, when one who has authority to do so at the right moment can do so. So if, if, if someone were your, you know, uh, the one who was uh, executed your will or, or here, they, they, would, they, would, they would come and, and, and take the seal and break it, open the scroll, and at that point, not only would your will be read, which it would be, but it would be enacted, wouldn't it? So theoretically, you could know what the, what the will said. But it didn't come into effect. It wasn't enacted until it was officially seal broken, unrolled, and read. And so this one holding, one sitting on the throne is holding in his right hand a throne. But it is a bit different than some you would find in the ancient world. For one, it had seven seals on it, not just one. Now in this book, in many other books of the Bible, numbers are just numbers, right? So when... When Jesus called 12 apostles, it's because he called one more than 11, right? But in the book of Revelation, when you see numbers, they're often used in a symbolic way. And I think that's the case here. The, the seven seals, the, in the book of Revelation, the number seven, as we mentioned the first week, uh, is a number symbolizing completeness. So the idea is that this, soul, this, this scroll is sealed completely. It's, it's not like it's going to fall open or slip open, right? It's sealed completely. But there's another interesting thing about this scroll that would have made it a bit different from some of the scrolls in the ancient world. John mentions that it's written on the front and on the back. Now the way the scrolls were put together is you would take, uh, take these uh, plants or parchment or elements and you would put a scroll together in such a way that it was really only easy to write on one side. So you might have 
horizontal uh, strips you know, on the front and vertical strips on the back. And it, it's easy to write on the horizontal strips, but on the vertical strips, it would be hard. You're writing over it. So, so most scrolls in the day would only be written on one side, on the front, on the inside. You would roll it up, you would unroll it, and there it is. This scroll is different, though. It's written on the front, and John says it's written on the back as well. Now, in the ancient world, there are a couple of reasons you may do this. One, you just may be so poor, you can't afford two scrolls. Just get one right on the front and the back. It's probably not the case here. Another reason someone might have uh, writing on the front and the back of the scroll is because you have information that's so important, you don't want to risk having it in two scrolls. What if you lose one? That's more toward the idea here. But I think there's even a different reason why this scroll is written on the front and the back. If you remember when we went through the book of Ezekiel, early in the book, God called Ezekiel to be his prophet. And God was telling him, I want you to speak my words. But the way he did it is he took a scroll that Ezekiel tells us was written on the front and on the back. And he had Ezekiel eat the scroll so that it was sweet in his mouth and then bitter in his stomach. And, and, and what the Lord was saying by that, what he laid out to Ezekiel is... The reason the scroll was written on the front and the back is because Ezekiel need not add anything to the Lord's message. Ezekiel was commanded, just say what I tell you to say. Say what I give you to say. In fact, for a number of years, Ezekiel could not even have small talk. Just say what God tells you to say. So here, I think, is the idea. You have a scroll written on the front and on, behalf, on the back because this is God's complete words. Nothing need to be added to the scroll. Nothing need to be taken away from it. You don't need to interpret anything. There it is, just given to us. So then the obvious question is, what then did this scroll contain with its seven seals and its writing on the front and on the back? Here's what I think it contained. I think this scroll had written on it all of God's purposes and plans for judgment and salvation. Everything that God would do, his, his work of judgment that was promised throughout the Old Testament, his work of salvation that was promised throughout the Old Testament and the New as well, the, this scroll, I think, contained God's complete purposes and plans, His work of salvation, His work of judgment. All of it is there. So that unless this scroll is opened, it's sealed broken, the scroll opened, the scroll read, then God's purposes and plans for judgment and salvation would not be enacted. Now the reason I think that's what this scroll is, is really for a couple of reasons. One, if you go back to that scroll that Ezekiel had, God's scroll that he gave Ezekiel with writing on the front of the hack, when we go on through the book of Ezekiel, you know what we find out God's scroll contained in it? Words of judgment and words of salvation. And as you go through the rest of the book of Revelation, where this scroll is unrolled and these visions are laid out for us, you know what we find? We're reading about God's work of judgment and his work of salvation. So I think that's what this scroll is. The scroll that must be opened... Seals must be broken, it must be read, it, it must be unfolded so that God's work of judgment and salvation can be enacted and carried out. That's the opening scene. Part two then in our drama. The dilemma. No one is worthy. The dilemma. No one is worthy. John writes in verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now this is a fitting question. Again, as we've already said, it must be someone to open it. 
Surely God's work of judgment and salvation is going to be fulfilled. So, so who is worthy? The angel then with a loud voice calls out, well, whoever's worthy, come and step forward. Come, take the scroll and open its seals. But John tells us in verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, in one sense, this should not be surprising. Remember the image from Revelation chapter 4, the one with peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and fire and sea and creatures all around him. Who in the world would be worthy to walk up to that one seated on the throne and take the scroll out of his right hand, his hand of power? If you're going to do that, you better be as fearfully transcendent and majestically awesome and infinitely glorious and mighty in all power. You must be nothing less than glorious as God Himself. But at the same time, if one is going to approach the one seated on the throne and take the scroll from his right hand and actually carry out and act, bring about God's work of judgment and salvation for humanity, it must be nothing less than a man, a human. One who can represent mankind, who can be his mediator, who can, who can make sacrifice for man, who can intercede for man, who can represent man as the great high priest. And so there is no one worthy. And this leads John to weep. We read in verse 4, And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now we could fly over verse 4. Or we could read it as if John is caught up in this drama and is thinking, oh yeah, I've got a part to play. You know, no one's worthy to open the scroll. Cue the tears. That's not what's going on here. These are genuine tears. In fact, in verse 4, we are not told John begins to weep, but we're told he begins to weep loudly. This is tragic. For John, why then? Because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Why does it cause John to weep loudly? Well, the answer is, if no one's worthy to open the scroll, then all of God's promises of judgment, all of God's promises of salvation come to nothing. Everyone, then, who had hoped in God's promise throughout the ages, if the scroll is not open, their hope is for nothing. Everyone who died in obedience to God as martyrs, and they did it because they knew there was a lasting, better city to come, nothing. Everyone who had hoped in the promises of God and now were lying in their graves would not be raised. Everyone who had made just costly decisions to obey their God and yet said, it's okay because there's more to come. It would not be true. Every one of these churches in, in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3 that were told, hold fast until the end. I know you're undergoing persecution. I know you're undergoing calamity. But there is blessing for the one who perseveres. It would not be true if there's not one to take the scroll break its seals and open it and look into it. 
And so John weeps loudly. No doubt, John was thinking much the same thing that Paul echoed in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he weeps loudly. But then one tells John to stop. Which brings us to our third part of this drama. The solution. The lion who is the lamb. The solution, the lion who is the lamb. In verse 5, John tells us, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now when John heard those words, Weep no more, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the text tells us he's not yet seen this one, right? He's not seen the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not yet seen this one called the Root of David. But he would have known these categories, as far back as Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he blesses Judah and says to him, the scepter will not depart from you until the one comes to whom it belongs. That is to say, there is going to be a king coming from the line of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah, God's Savior, is going to come from Judah's line and he's going to reign. But the Old Testament didn't just say that. It also said that one would come from David's line. David himself comes from Judah's line, and then David would have a son. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, it looks like the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic kings have just come to an end. It's like a tree that's just been cut down to the stump. But Isaiah promises that, that there's going to be a shoot that's going to come out of that dead stump, and there's going to be life where it looks like there's death. There's going to be a king where it looks like there's no hope. David's great son, the Messiah, is introduced as that shoot that would come from the tree, but not just the shoot. Isaiah 11 says he's not just the shoot from the tree of Jesse, but he's the root of David. That is, yes, the Messiah will be David's son, humanly speaking, but he's also one who is David's creator, who existed before David. Jesus is both the shoot of David and the root of David. And so John would have known these categories as he's told, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. But when John turns then to see this lion, to see this root of David, what he sees would no doubt perhaps be a little different than what he might have been picturing. We read in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. That is to say, this isn't one who's coming from way outside, but one who's right there in the midst of the throne. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Instantly, John sees pictured how it is that this lion of the tribe of Judah, the Savior, this root of David, the Messiah, has conquered. How has he conquered? He's conquered by giving his life. 
to the point of death on a cross. John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and what he sees is a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. Now this is not to say John might have been picturing something with great power and majesty, the one who would reign, and he turns and sees a feeble lamb. That's not the picture. This is no feeble lamb. He turns and he sees a lamb that had been slain but was standing. A reminder of the truth we sang earlier. He went to his death, but behold, he's alive. John sees Jesus in His glory standing though He has died. This is one who has been raised. Not only that, but He has seven horns. Now, in, in, in a book like Revelation, horns, in apocalyptic literature, horns symbolize power. Often kings or, or kingdoms are symbolized by having horns in this book. So here you have a lamb that we're not supposed to look at and say, oh, look at the precious, feeble little lamb. No, this is a lamb with seven horns. That is to say, if the horns represent power, this one has all power. Not only that, he has seven eyes. Eyes in apocalyptic literature uh, represent God's omniscience, his, his omnipotent. He knows all, he sees all, he has all power. That is this lamb. And the text tells us specifically that the seven eyes also not only tell us about God's omniscience, that He knows all, that He sees all, but they're the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is to say, this is the one who will be able to enact and carry out God's work of judgment and salvation to the full, and He will do it by the Holy Spirit, by His Spirit. that will go out into all the earth. But John doesn't simply see this lamb. But he tells us what he did, verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Here is one who, because he is a man, can save us. Because he is man, can, can carry out God's work of salvation and judgment for mankind. And yet, because he is God is infinitely glorious and almighty in power and can go to the right hand of one who is seated on the throne and take the scroll. It is at this moment, at that moment, when the Lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, every promise of God for salvation and judgment, every plan of God for salvation and judgment is made sure. It is certain because the Lamb who lived, who died, and who was raised. He has conquered it. He is worthy. And He takes the scroll. And this then brings us to, in this drama, our conclusion. Our conclusion. Simply written out with this, what this means. As the Lamb walks up to the One who is seated on the throne, whom every creature in heaven has been worshiping? I mean, we might ask earlier, why wouldn't any of these mighty creatures around the throne be willing to take the scroll from the right hand of God? Because they're nothing compared to Him. Though they are so awesome and mighty that their mere voices can shake the heavens themselves, they cannot do it. They themselves, according to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, Day and night never cease to praise God, the Holy, Holy, Holy One, the Almighty One seated on the throne who is and is to come. 
So as they see then the Lamb go up to this God who demands from them never ceasing praise for all of eternity, when the Lamb walks up to that one seated on the throne and takes the scroll from His right hand, the hand of power, nobody has to tell heaven what to do. Nobody has to tell the four living creatures what to do. In fact, the text just tells us, verse 8, And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Instantly. They fall down before the Lamb knowing that He is worthy of worship. They have golden bowls full of the prayers of the saints because if the Lamb then has made the promises and the plans and the purposes of God certain and sure, then our prayers are meaningful. If the Lamb was not worthy, if that scroll could not be opened, then pray all you want. It doesn't matter. But if that scroll has been opened because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then our prayers are powerful. They can be carried out as we pray to the Lord, Your will be done. So they're holding each a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And in verse 9 it says, And they sang a new song. Why a new song? When new song in the Bible is a song where what they've sung before is now no longer sufficient on its own because God has done something new. So when God brought Israel in the Exodus, out of Egypt, the Israelites and Moses sang a new song. Why? It wasn't because all their old songs were no longer worth singing anymore. Of course they were. But they never had a song that celebrated the fact that God had redeemed His people out of slavery from Egypt. That now demands they sing a new song. Well, in Revelation chapter 4, the creatures in heaven had been singing to God. In fact, Day and night. They, they never ceased to say He was holy, holy, holy. He's almighty. He wasn't as to come. In verse 11 of chapter 4, they're obviously praising Him because He's the Creator. He created all things and by God's will they exist and were created. So God is worthy of our praise because He created the world and, and He preserves it. He upholds it. My heart and your heart keep beating right now because of God. The world keeps spinning because of God. The stars come out at night because of God. He's the one who created and preserves the world. But after they see the Lamb take the scroll by His death and resurrection, enacting now all the promises and plans and purposes of God, it's just not sufficient anymore to only praise God because He's Creator. To only praise God because He preserves. Now they know they must praise God because He has ransomed a people He's not only created the world, but when we rebelled against Him, He sent His Son to come and get us. His rebellious creation has been recaptured, has been purchased. That's what the language of redemption or, or, or ransomed means, that we've been bought, we've been purchased back to God. And so it says in verse 9, they sing a new song. Now the focus is on His work of ransom, His work of redemption. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe 
and language and people and nation. Because the Son reigns over all the earth, it's not enough for Him to say, the people from this nation or that nation are My people and I reign over them. He must reign over all the earth. This is why there are going to be people from every single language, tribe, people, and nation saved. This is why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to be successful. Gospel proclamation is going to reach the ends of the earth. We don't know how many, but some from every tribe on the face of the earth will be saved because Jesus Christ is King of every tribe on the face of the earth. And so every tribe and language and people and nation, verse 10, you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That is, you've made them so that they will reign with you. You've, You've redeemed them. You've ransomed them so that they can approach your throne with boldness in their prayers. But perhaps more central to the song, we should notice that they say you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. As I was doing my Master of Divinity work at Southern Seminary, I had a class with Russell Moore. I just now got on to another job, but at that point he was at Southern, he was teaching a class. And uh, on the Doctrine of Salvation, I had that class with him, and, and I can't even remember the context, but in the class he just told a, a story, just, just an anecdote of uh, a day when uh, Southern Seminary, now it's just a good seminary teaching the Bible, that wasn't always the case. And so he reflected on a day when, when there were professors who just weren't preaching that Jesus even was bodily raised or, or any of this just terrible. And, and he said he remembers going to the funeral of one of the former uh, faculty. And um, Russ says he, he snuck into the back of the church um, because there, there weren't a whole lot of like-minded people there. And so he was sitting in the back of the church and uh, this man was, his body was brought out and they, they all you know, were ready for the funeral and they had a moment as part of the funeral service where people would come out and say something. And uh, he said one of the saddest moments took place when uh, a girl walked up to the podium to say of her beloved professor who had now died, She said, the thing that I find myself most thankful for, for this man, is that he taught me that there needed to be no bloody atonement for the forgiveness of my sins. That it's just a crude picture. We don't need it. We don't need the shedding of blood. We don't need Jesus dying. That that wasn't necessary for the forgiveness of my sins. And then she walked down and, and Russ just said at that moment, was just crushed. Because the reality is, she is utterly wrong. Revelation 5 says, if we as God's enemies were going to be ransomed for God, brought to Him, forgiven of our sins and cleansed and made His, Jesus ransomed us by His blood. It was utterly necessary that God the Son take on flesh so that He might hang on a cross and bleed and die. And He bled and died because He ransomed us for God. What that means is, if we're bought by the blood of Christ, bought with the price of His blood for God, then this has huge ramifications for us. 
The ramifications can be summed up simply in this statement. You're no longer your own. You belong to God. And you've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, the slain lamb who was worthy to take the scroll. What this means is, if anyone were to ask you, why in the world would you pick up out of your comfortable setting and go to another place that you might preach the gospel to those who have not heard? Isn't that crazy? Why wouldn't you do something that's, that's less stressful, something that costs you less? Your answer can be, because I don't belong to myself. I'm not my own. I belong to God. He's purchased me by His blood, and I am His. The reason believers make decisions to, to bring orphans into their home and care for them and to, to exercise the difficulty of, of giving compassion and care to widows is not because they can't find anything better to do. It's because they're no longer their own. You can't live for yourself because you don't belong to yourself. You've been bought by the blood of Christ for God. The reason you persevere in marriage isn't because there's some kind of certificate you get at the end of it all. The reason you persevere in faithfulness in marriage even when it's hard is because you're not your own. You've been bought by the blood of Christ and God Himself commands you to be faithful. The reason you consistently fight against your lust, though all the world around you says everybody's doing it, is because you're not your own. It's not your decision to make and God is commanding you not to lust. The reason though you may be tempted with homosexual desires, the reason you fight those temptations day in and day out, Though the culture around you says, just give in and we'll celebrate it. The reason you fight those temptations is because you're not your own. You've been bought with a price by the blood of Christ. You have been ransomed by Christ's blood for God. The ramifications of this song are that we say to our Lord, whatever it costs me, we'll obey you. Because we now belong to God. We're expected to obey, but our obedience is a hopeful obedience. Our prayers can be heard. Our praise is due our God, and one day we will reign with Him. And yet it's not enough that in verses 8-10, through 10, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down to worship the Lamb. It spreads in verses 11 and 12, John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I don't think it's a mistake that there are seven of those. This is complete worship is due to God. Myriads and myriads of angels. Thousands of thousands. This is thousands times thousands of angels. This is a huge number of angels. So it's not enough that the four living creatures and the 24 elders praise the Lamb. Now He's due the worship of all the angels of heaven. But that's not enough. Verses 13 and 14. And they heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which is a refrain you find from here on out in the book of Revelation. Our focus is not only on our God, but upon His Son. 
the work of the Spirit, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Do you see that the, the worship of the Lamb has brought in, been brought into the worship of the One who is seated on the throne in chapter 4? Verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation chapter 5, I think, simply screams this, Behold your Savior. The crucified and risen Lamb has done everything necessary because of His life and His death and His resurrection to bring about every promise and purpose of God for judgment and salvation, and He is therefore worthy of our worship. That means, yes, that He is worthy of us gathering on a Sunday morning and singing to Him. He's worthy of that. But it means even more that He's worthy of us offering our lives to Him. That's our spiritual act of worship. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and who has died and who has raised. If you want to talk to me more about that, we would love to talk to you about that. And then you could, as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll, you'll make that profession of your faith in Jesus Christ public by being baptized. As we're immersed in water and brought up with it, we're saying we are identifying ourselves, we're united by faith with the one who lived and who died and who was raised with us. For us. If you already are a believer, you've already professed your faith through baptism. If you're a member in good standing with an evangelical church. We want to invite you to come to the table with us this morning. We're going to take a moment of silence just as we reflect on this text. And then we're going to distribute the bread and the cup together. As we do this, may our proclamation be, worthy is the one who gave his body and shed his blood so that we might be ransomed for God. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare ourselves to come to the table this morning.